Well, good morning. Welcome everybody who's joining us on site and online here this morning as well. Uh, glad you're all with us today. This is week two of our new sermon series called The DNA of Our Church. And what we're doing is we're looking at some of the building blocks that make up West Meadows, makes up our church. If you were with us last week, you know that we define DNA in a bit more detail than we're going to today, but we define it as the unique values that guide how we fulfill God's mission for his church. And that mission, which, which was given to us as part of the great co-mission, which is to go into all the world and to invite people and to teach all people how they can be wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. That's the mission that we as the church have been given. And that's part of our DNA. And when we look at the Gospels, we see that when people experience something like this, when, when the disciples were true, when the church was true to go out and to uh, invite people to learn and to experience life with Jesus, we see that they experienced new life. And so when we talk about our mission here at West Meadows, we say things like, like we're inviting people to experience new life with Jesus. But also within the DNA of our church are these values, these core values, these unique ways that God has shaped and equipped us to go fulfill that mission in the area in which he has planted us, in the context in which we find ourselves. And these values are these, these, these core characteristics, these unique characteristics, these, these convictions that we have that reveal our priorities and guide our actions. And we have six of them. We have six of them. We're going to go through the next six weeks. There's one we talked about last week, countercultural love, heartfelt hospitality, encountering Jesus, vibrant faith, empowering people, and strengthening communities. If you're with us last week, you know that we unpacked that first one, that countercultural love, where we looked at an example of Jesus having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And as he led into that conversation as he led into her life with countercultural love, we see that it was unlike anything she had ever experienced in her life before. And not only did it have an impact upon her, but the fact that he showed countercultural love to her had a ripple effect to transform an entire community. And that was an encouragement for us, I hope, where we, we were encouraged by that to then go forth ourselves and share God's never-changing love with an ever-changing world. Now, if you missed that sermon or if you want to review some of the principles from that, you know, you can subscribe to our podcast on all the major providers for that. Or you can go to our website, westmeadows.org, and you can watch or listen to that sermon and other sermons again as well. And on there, you might also find something that you have maybe heard about but haven't understood, and that's our Beyond the Message questions, which are on there as well, where if you want to study the context and the content of a sermon a little more detail on your own, uh, in your home, as a family, or as your small group— you can find the Beyond the Message questions that are included on the page there as well. We've actually put a link on the home page now, so it's even easier than ever to find those things. And I want you to know about that, and I take a minute to highlight that, because as we talk about our DNA of a church, as we talk about our core values, it's great that you're here and that you're experiencing these things here, but we want you to be discussing these things amongst yourselves. We, we want you to take time to process these things yourselves. And so the Beyond the Message questions are a great way that you can do that after Sunday morning. Now, today we want to jump into number two, which is heartfelt hospitality. And we explain this by saying that we, tr we strive to cultivate a sense of belonging that softens people's hearts and saturates their lives. Now, when we speak about this word hospitality, what we're really talking about is the relationship that exists between a host and a guest. 
And, and when, when a host and a guest come together, it creates this overall experience that leaves a feeling with the guest. And based upon how that encounter went, it forms a lasting impression. Now, you've probably heard the phrase before, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. We've, I'm sure we've all heard that saying before. And it's very, very true. And that first impression actually forms faster than you may think. See, they've done research, and social sciences has done research into this, and they developed something that's referred to as the 7-Eleven rule. And what that is, is that when you meet a person, when you encounter an event or business, a restaurant, whatever it may be, you will make 11 decisions in seven seconds. In seven seconds, you'll make 11 decisions. And you won't even realize you're doing this, but it's just sort of the way that we're wired. Based upon a person or an organization's appearance, their uh, apparent success, their trustworthiness, their background, what they present as a competency or lack thereof, will form a decision. You'll make 11 decisions in seven seconds based upon these types of things. And then the rest of the time that you're interacting with that person or that organization, you're actually gathering evidence to prove your original impression of that person, event, or place. Now, a lot of us don't know that this happens, but we've all Probably if you think back, you can experience, you can think of a moment where you experienced this, where you met a person or you went to a restaurant and you're like, you know what, I'm not sure seafood restaurants are supposed to smell that way. And, and you formed an impression on, in just a couple of seconds, right? And, and we all do this. It's, it's kind of how we're wired into us. And within those moments, we begin to face some critical questions. Questions like, do I belong here? Do I even want to be here? Should I stay or should I go? Uh, and, and will I come back again in the future? So this is the nature of hospitality, the importance of hospitality. And based upon these first impressions, it saturates our view of people and of organizations and our future participation with them. So I hope you can understand from a brief explanation of this sort of thing is, is how serious of a topic this is for a church. Because not only is the hospitality we show as an organization leading people to form a first impression about us, but we declare ourselves to be the people of God. And that means that they're also forming an impression about God and about him. So it's an important thing for us to consider. And sometimes we blow it. I, I've, I have blown it. I, I've blown it many, many times, I'm sure. And there's one in particular that comes to mind for me. It happened a number of years ago when we lived in BC, and it was this time we, we had a, a new family move in next door to us, and we, we had seen them as they were moving in. We knew they were another young family like we were at the time. This is about 25 years ago. And I hadn't had a chance to meet them yet, but I wanted to because we had little kids. They had little kids. So this, this would be fantastic, but I hadn't had a chance to meet them yet. But Sunday morning, we get up, and we're getting into our vehicle to drive to church, which is a few blocks away. And, and they had just pulled out of the driveway, and I thought, man, I missed it. Another opportunity lost. But I pulled out, and we were kind of behind them, falling down the road, and, and they went left, and we went left, and then they went right, and we went right. And I thought, well, that's not too unusual. There's only so many ways out of our neighborhood. But as we drove down the main road, they then took a right and a left into our church parking lot. I got really excited. So I'm thinking, two birds with one stone. I, I, I get to meet the new family. I can get that out of the way. And at the same time, I can warmly welcome them to church. And I can help them understand that we are a warm, fun-loving community that they want to be a part of. And what better way to do that than lead with a joke, right? Because that's how I am. But have you ever thought of a joke or a witty comment that sounds hilarious in your head, but it just doesn't quite work in the real world? 
Yeah. So they parked, and I parked beside them. And I get out of my vehicle, and I stand there with a big smile on my face. And I look, and I go, hey, you must be new here. You parked in my spot. <laughs> they didn't need seven seconds to make 11 decisions about me in that moment. It sounded hilarious in my head. But I could see by just the gaze they gave to me, they didn't know, should I stay or should I go? Do I belong? Do I want to be here? So do better than me, okay? Do better than me in showing hospitality to others. But here's the good news. Quite often we do here at West Meadows do better than that with hospitality. You know, obviously there's always things we can do more. There's always things that we can do better. But when I meet people and when we host these Discover West Meadows lunches, one thing we constantly hear is that people feel welcomed. People feel like we do put forward our best foot and have good hospitality here. And so I just want to say that's fantastic. And I want to say thank you for being a congregation that does strive to welcome people. And I also want to say thank you because that means I don't need to spend as much time today talking about how to do that. And we can talk more about the important question as to why. Why do we do that? Why do we need to be so concerned and have a core value of heartfelt hospitality? Because while it may start with a smile and a handshake... And choosing not to share that witty comment that you think is hilarious. There is great purpose and there is great power behind it. And heartfelt hospitality cultivates within a person a sense of belonging that it can soften their hearts. It can saturate their lives and lead them to give all glory to God. And so we want to look at this value a little more closely today. And we want to do so by drawing your attention to a time when Jesus was hosted at a party. And this is found in Luke chapter 7. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7 if you want to. And you can um, use the pew Bibles in front of you if you want. And that's found on page 839. Also, the, the scripture is included in the sermon notes in the pew portal. So you can find them there as well. And while you're turning there, I'll just let you know that this, this was not the first time Jesus got invited somewhere. He was invited to dinner parties all the time, but he wasn't a very good dinner guest. He tended to be a little disruptive and, and uh, cause some problems at parties. And it wasn't on purpose, intentional, but, but he got accused of doing things like hanging out with the wrong people and bringing up controversial topics and, and offending the host quite often. But they still kept inviting him to come to their dinner parties. And perhaps that was the reason. They, they thought, well, when Jesus is there, you never know what's going to happen. And so they would bring him by. And one example of this is when the Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to his home for a dinner party. And the dinner party began, as you might expect, where, where Simon's friends and colleagues and, and the people he's trying to impress are all reclined around a table eating dinner together. And events like this, where you had a celebrity guest at your home, quite often what you would do as a host is you would leave your, your door open, like, like literally, not proverbially, you would literally leave your door open. And the reason you would do this is because you were allowing the uninvited people of the community, the people who were of a lower status, who weren't invited to the table, but your open door would allow the uninvited to come in and stand on the perimeter of the room. And by allowing them to come stand on the perimeter of the room, events like this became a way for a guy like Simon to boast. He could demonstrate to these wallflowers, this is my house. This is my party. This, this is my guest of honor. Is what he would try to communicate to these people. And as he does this, something happens. What we see happen in verse 37 is a well-known sinful woman. And sinful woman also, that's kind of code for a prostitute. Well-known in the town. 
She comes in and she moves from the wall to the table. And we read this in verse 37. A woman of that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at a Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wipe his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. Then the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to this party said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. He would, he would know what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This notorious woman not only crashes the party, but she approaches this table where there is no place set for her. She falls at the feet of Jesus, weeping, pouring out this humble expression of love. And, and such deep and pure and raw emotion comes through that, that it would have grabbed everyone's attention in the room. And some would have been concerned, thinking, well, well what happened? What did I miss? Why, why is she crying? Others would have been wondering, well, I know her. I wonder what, I wonder what she wants when she's here. But, but Simon has no such questions for her. He simply rebukes both of them. He rebukes this woman for being sinful and not knowing her place. You don't belong here. I didn't set a place at the table for you. Why don't you just stay on the sidelines, essentially, is the rebuke. And he rebukes Jesus as well, saying, you must know who she is. If you were a prophet with divine insight, as the prophets were said to hold, you would not allow her to touch you. You would not allow her to be near you. You would stop her from what she is doing. But contrary to Simon's conclusions, Jesus knows exactly who she is. He knows exactly what's going on, and he knows exactly why she's crying. And so he says to Simon in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, Simon replied. Simon, there were two, men, two people who owed money to a certain moneylender, and one of them owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, Simon, which one do you think loved him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. The scenario here is somebody who owes two months' salary versus somebody who owns, owes two years' worth of salary. But the bigger issue is the fact that neither of them had the means to pay it back. Regardless of how big the debt was, it was insurmountable for both of them. And in that time and place, a money collector was allowed and even expected to, to increase the pressure, to turn up the heat on those who owed him money. And if they couldn't afford to pay him, he was allowed to go to their homes and take their possessions until he was made whole. And if that wasn't enough, he could take their family as slaves in his home, as servants in his home until they had paid it back. And if that wasn't enough, he could even have the man thrown in jail until he could pay it back. That's what was allowed. That, that's what was expected in this scenario. But, but instead, in Jesus' parable, this man chooses to forgive them. Both of them. Now, obviously, both of them in that scenario, knowing what the penalty was, what the potential was, knowing that there was no way they could escape it, they could get away from it, that it was probably what they deserved and what they expected to be given forgiveness, they both would have had a very positive view of this money collector. You might even say that they loved him for forgiving that debt. And so the logical conclusion that Simon delivers is, is that the one who was forgiven more would, would obviously love more. And Jesus affirms this. Jesus affirms this understanding of the parable. But he also uses it as an opportunity to reveal a relational ethic of the kingdom of God. And you see, what happens next here, after he tells this parable and Simon seems to understand it, Jesus continues to speak to Simon, but he turns his eyes towards the woman. 
And he says to Simon, looking at this woman in front of him, do you see her, Simon? Do you see her? I came into your house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. Simon, you didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I've entered does not stop kissing my feet. And, and Simon, I, I don't recall you putting any oil on my hair, and, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little will love little. Whoever has been forgiven little will love little. See, hospitality in the ancient Near East was a big deal. A person was obligated to show hospitality to a traveler. If you, if you lived in a region and a traveler came through, you were obligated to give food and to give water, to give shelter. We see this all the way back to like Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham welcomes three visitors who turned out to be angels, but he didn't know that at the time. He simply saw three travelers coming through his land, and he goes out to meet them. He invites them to come into his home. He, he offers them water for their feet and food and drink to refresh themselves. He, he gives them a place to rest that's safe and comfortable until they can continue their journey. That was the nature of hospitality. That was part of the culture. From, from Genesis 18 right up to this time of Jesus, hospitality was huge. And these were all common forms of showing hospitality. But then Jesus mentions a few more here. You see, if, if the guest in your home was a beloved guest, you would greet them with a kiss. It was a, it was a sign of friendship and acceptance. If, if this person who was invited into your home was a VIP, you, you would pour scented olive oil over their head, over their hair as a sign of respect and honor. And Jesus goes, Simon, you didn't do any of this. You've treated me like a beloved. You've treated me like a VIP since the moment I walked in here so that you could show off for your friends, but at no point did you show hospitality to me. Ironically, Simon, it is this unwelcomed woman who has extended that to me. And her act of love was, was not the reason that Jesus said she was forgiven. No, you see, Jesus did not forgive her because she was fond of him. Jesus did not forgive her because she was serving him. If you, if you read to the bottom of the chapter, verse 50, Jesus says to the woman, your faith is what has saved you. Now go in peace. You see, what we experience in this story is the expression of love that overflows as the result of one who has encountered Jesus. An encounter with Jesus that gave her a sense of belonging, that, that, that just softened her heart. A message of hope that, that saturated her life. There's clearly a story behind the story. There's, there's some encounter, some teaching, some experience she had with Jesus prior to this day that clearly softened her heart and saturated her life. That brought her to this place of hope and faith in Jesus. Where she was no longer relegated to the outside, but she was welcomed to the table by Jesus. Because as he says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little, but whoever forgiven much loves much. So as we've seen in the story, one way that love is expressed is through, far, through heartfelt hospitality, especially to those who are different than us. And we see this lesson also as, as we look at the contrast that Jesus draws between the two main characters in this story. And that teaches us more, not just about the characters, but about the motivation behind our hospitality as well. See, so let's look at Simon first. You see, Simon, for example, he, his reason for hosting Jesus, I think we would agree, was selfishly motivated. I'm going to have Jesus as a guest in my home and leave my door open so people can see me. And Jesus' response to this, he kind of calls him out in a bit of a backhanded manner. He goes, yes, Simon, 
you're just a little sinner. Little sinners only need to be forgiven a little, and if you're forgiven a little, you'll love a little, and if you love a little, you'll show a little hospitality. And Simon probably didn't know how to respond to this response. He, he didn't know if he should be offended by that or not, because he did see himself as a little sinner. It's kind of a self-righteous Pharisee, where I'm better than them. I need to separate myself from them. And if I'm around them, it'll look like I'm accepting them. And if it looks like I'm accepting them, people will think that I'm endorsing them, and then that won't look good for me. And if Jesus was as righteous as me, Simon would think to himself, if Jesus was as righteous as me, then he would know she's one of them. And he would not welcome one of them to the table. So not only did Simon judge and exclude this woman based upon her record of past sins, Simon also misjudged his own need of God's grace and his own need of God's love in his own life. Which is why Jesus can look at him in this sense and say, yeah, whoever has been forgiven little or whoever thinks they're only in need of a little forgiveness will only love a little, will only welcome a little. If you think you're only in need of a little forgiveness. The woman, on the other hand, the imposter in the room, the one who has been relegated to the fringe her entire life is very aware of what people think of her. Through, through word and through action, people of her town have made sure that she knows exactly that the words that she thinks to herself are true as she thinks, I'm a big sinner and I'm in need of much forgiveness. But she finds it in Jesus. And she finds it in Jesus and it gives her the ability to step from the shadows and it motivates her with this new sense of belonging that, 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 that doesn't lead her to show hospitality to Jesus because he, she, she owes it to him or because she's obligated to do so. That's not why she does it. She does it as an overflowing of the love that she feels from her experience with him. You see, a natural byproduct of one who is forgiven much is to love much. And in this case, one who is forgiven much welcomes much. You see, this woman displays the heart behind heartfelt hospitality. She reveals the why. This is a value that we need to be aware of here at West Meadows. Because she represents the hope for all people who are invited, who are welcomed to come experience new life with Jesus. Does that make sense? Because when we see people, whether it's on the street or it's at work or at school, in the foyer or if at a community event, when we see people, we make 11 decisions in 7 seconds. We do that. Based upon their appearance, is, is their hair messy? Is their hair groomed? Are they tattooed and pierced or clean cut in a suit and tie? And based upon those decisions, well, we might make a decision about that person. Are, are they struggling? Are they successful? Are they sketchy or are they trustworthy? Are they like me or are they one of them? And then for some people, based upon that decision they make, they will then determine, do I talk to them or ignore them? Do I, do I accept them or reject them? Are they a little sinner or are they a big sinner? And one thing I want us to all understand today is that, is that from God's view, there really is no such thing as a big sinner or a little sinner. From God's view, there's just sinners. There's just, there's just sinners. You see, the, the foot of the cross is level. It, it, it doesn't matter uh, what you have done or have not done in the past. It, it doesn't matter uh, the sins you've had, the works you've done. It, it, it doesn't matter your background, your history, where you're from. It, none of that matters when we approach the cross, the ground is level, and when we kneel down, we are all on the same level on our knees in front of the cross. 
See, the question in that moment is not how much or how little sin you have in life. The question then becomes how much of God's grace do you have? How much of God's grace have you received and are you now there showing through your life? Because we can rank ourselves on, on levels of sin and whatnot, but as soon as we put God's righteousness at the top, it all falls short. And at that point, we find out that we have an eternal debt that we can never repay. And the only solution is one who says, I'll pay it for you. And that's what Jesus did. He said, I'll pay it for you. And at that moment, regardless of how much or how little sin we may think we have, the account is wiped clean. Early in my time as a pastor, I met a guy who was different than a lot of people I had met before and people went to my church. A man uh, who was homeless, a man by the name of Larry. And Larry would come to the church every single day. And he would sit on a couch outside of our offices and he would drink coffee. Now, Larry had a hard life. He had a lonely life. He had addictions in his past and he was presently wrestling with still. He had been arrested multiple times. He was estranged from his family and he had no friends. Because of this life that he had lived, he really wrestled to trust people. And when you look at Larry, he didn't look like me. He didn't live or work like any of us on the staff. And he didn't talk or act like him in our congregation. But he was welcomed as one of the congregation. And for 10 years, Larry sat on that sofa every day and drank coffee, and I'd visit with him. On Sundays, we held three services every Sunday morning, and he would come to all three services. He went to church more than, more than we did. When we were going to a staff lunch, we were like, hey, Larry, we got a room in the car for you. Jump in, we'll take you for lunch. When there were problems going on, we would sit and we would share, and, I, and we would counsel, and I would pray for Larry, and share God's love with him in word and in deed, and and then one day it happened where I, I got the news that Larry couldn't sleep one night in the hotel he was staying at. And so he thought, well, I'll just go walk around a car lot across the street and look at trucks. Who doesn't like trucks? But it's three in the morning, the security guard saw him, and they, they chased him off, as had happened so many times in his life, as he had been chased off from different places and corners. And, and I know he shouldn't have been there. He wasn't doing any harm, but he, he got chased off. And as he was running back across the highway to his hotel, he got hit by a car and he died. And a few days later, we held a memorial service for Larry. There is no family there, no friends from his past, just staff and people from the church. And as I led that memorial service, these are some of the words that I shared about him. For those of us who sat on the couch with Larry, we know how he liked his coffee. One sweetener and one cream. And while drinking that coffee, there's a good chance that you shared a conversation, a laugh, or a story with him. There's one thing about Larry. He had stories. Many were funny. Many were sad. Some were shocking. A lot of them were inappropriate. But when I saw Larry, I wanted to sit with him. I wanted to hear a story because I wanted to know more of him. None of us had any delusions as to who he was. His knack for finding trouble, his risky choices. Some people in this world simply saw him as a poor, homeless panhandler that they assumed there was nothing lovable about, and they wrote off as a nuisance, a problem to be moved on down the road. If only there were more couches in this world that Larry could have sat upon. We did not love Larry because of who he was or because of anything that he could do for us. Rather, we loved him because Christ first loved us. 
And we know the transforming power of Jesus Christ's love. And day after day, Larry sat on the couch, and he saw and he heard that love lived out as part of our church family. He heard it. He believed it. He received Jesus for himself. I was there when it happened. And because of that, I know, because of that, he's homeless no more. You see, so often we're surrounded ourselves with those who, with who we share an affinity, who pass the 7-Eleven test. But Jesus' example in teaching on hospitality here challenges us to open those circles. To welcome other people in who, who otherwise wouldn't be. And we see an example of this again in another dinner party Jesus was invited to just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 14. And Jesus at this particular dinner party with another Pharisee gave this word to the people there. He said to them, when you hold a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they're going to invite you back, and you're going to be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the cripple, and invite the lame, invite the blind, invite those who wouldn't naturally be those you have an affinity with. Invite those that don't fit the circle. And you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection. This challenges us. It challenges us to make room at the table for those who don't look, act, vote, pray, believe the same way we might. But what, but, but what if people see me? What, what if people see me and they think I'm agreeing with that person? What if, what if people see me showing hospitality and they can think I'm condoning those actions? I... It's a fear that people have sometimes. I don't think it's going to happen, though. You know, this woman did not think Jesus suddenly condoned her occupation choice. That's not part of the story. What is part of the story is that because he welcomed her and he acknowledged her hospitality towards him, she received a sense of belonging that softened her heart and it saturated her life and it gave her reason to rethink decisions of her life. See, most people we encounter will not be on the fringe of society like this woman or, or like Larry. The community and the circles that we run in, most people will appear very similar to us, but regardless of what they look like on the outside, the big question comes back to this again, is the difference of knowing Jesus Christ makes on the inside. And that affects how we act on the outside. And if we're willing to make room in our day to hear a person's story, around our table to share our lives, in our pews to share the worship of God, if we're willing to do that, just watch what God will do in our day and around our table and in our lives and in our pews. And one of the beautiful ways that we can do that to welcome people is by showing heartfelt hospitality by which we cultivate a sense of belonging that softens hearts and saturates lives. But remember, our motivation starts with understanding the weight of our own sin. Not so that we can divide people into us and them, the big and the little sinner groups. That's what Simon was doing. But the motivation starts with understanding the weight of our sin and God's verdict that all people have sinned and all have fallen short of his glory. Therefore, we're not all so different. We're not all two-month and two-year debt sinners. We all have an eternal debt. But Jesus extended his love to us and his hospitality by inviting us to discover that the debt collector is not ruthless. 
That while God could have foreclosed on us, he, he could have cast us out and made us homeless. Instead, he wrote the check. Because while the wages of sin are death, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And when a person hears that and receives that into their own life, what is their response? How, how do you think you and others should respond? With, with gratitude? With celebration? With love? Absolutely. But in more than that, to take that love and to pay it forward through heartfelt hospitality to others so that others too can be invited to experience new life with Jesus as well. I love how West Meadows has grown into a community that strives to love all people, including those that continually add to our diversity. May we continue to not only make room for others around the table of God, but in our own hearts as well.